Pacifica Radio. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, in Oregon, KYAQ Central Coast, Queso Cottage Grove, KEPW Eugene, Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU, Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR, Norlands, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, in Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, Red Bluff, Redding, California, KFOI, Round Mountain, California, KKRN, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, blanketing the globe five days a week. As usually hosted by Brad Friedman of BradBlock.com, but... You have me, Angie Coiro. I host In Deep with Angie Coiro, heard on many of these fine stations and streams. Hey, did you listen to yesterday's show? It is up at thebradblog.com if you missed it. It's intense. So much news flying in, even as they were doing the show. And, you know, I kind of figured that around this Thanksgiving holiday, things would quiet down a bit by the time I stepped in. So far, knock wood, that has been the case. The upside to that, okay, well... There's a ton of upside to that since a news onslaught is usually overwhelming and not good for mental health. But one of the upsides is we can spend some time today with lower profile but still very important stuff. Later this hour, we're going to do a deep dive into what Representative-elect Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has brought to the fore. She couldn't find housing that she could afford in D.C. She can join the club. Urban areas are squeezing out all but two groups, those of moderate means who got in there early, and people with pots and pots of money. Housing advocate Randy Shaw lays part of the problem squarely at the feet of the boomer generation. He says there's a generational element here, so we'll get to that later. And we'll also hear from someone I truly admire, public historian Adam Hochschild. He has got a new book out. I talked to him about just how close to 1930s Germany we might tilt under Trump. Here's a preview. He is surprisingly optimistic on that point. Let us do get to some of the news du jour, though, with a trio of stories on abortion rights to kick off. Top of the list, bottom of the barrel, is Ohio, where a state rep has moved to criminalize abortion. Criminalize any abortion from conception on, with the death penalty in play. We go to the independent UK for this one. Quote, politicians in Ohio are considering passing a bill that could allow abortions to be punishable with life sentences in prison and even the death penalty. The proposed law, House Bill 565, would extend the definition of a person in Ohio's criminal code to include the unborn human. That would mean a fetus from conception to birth would be considered a person, leaving people who perform or undergo abortions vulnerable to severe criminal penalties. House Bill 565 makes no exception for pregnancies arising from rape or incest or which risk the life of the mother. God, these people are inhuman. They're just inhuman. Back to the story, quote, the Ohio legislature is controlled by the local Republican Party. There's a shocker. The bill would not only criminalize abortion, but also defines the process as, quote, causing the death of an unborn human by any method, including but not limited to chemical methods, medical methods and surgical methods, end quote. So this bill introduced back in March is being taken up now by the state legislature's health committee where it has company. Just a week ago. The state legislature in Ohio passed the Heartbeat Bill, which, and we're going back to the independent for this, would criminalize performing abortions at the point a fetal heartbeat is detective. Most women are unaware of their pregnancy at this point. So by the time you know you're pregnant, the state will have defined the rest of your life. I hate sharing a country with these people. Hate it. The Washington Post covers the second of our three abortion stories. That is much better news. A federal judge struck down a Mississippi ban on abortions after 15 weeks. Some of the language here is fabulous. 
one of the most restrictive abortion laws in the country, ruling Tuesday, quote, that the ban, uh, ban unequivocally infringes on the due process rights of women. U.S. District Judge Carlton Reeves, this just keeps getting better, in Jackson wrote a sharply worded rebuke of the law, calling it a deliberate attempt by the state to ask the newly conservative majority Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. At one point in his ruling, he said the Mississippi legislature's professed interest in women's health is pure gaslighting busted them out loud. This is in a court ruling. He busted them on their BS. Going back to the ruling, the state chose to pass a law it knew was unconstitutional to endorse a decades-long campaign fueled by national interest groups to ask the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. With the recent changes in the membership of the Supreme Court, it may be that the state believes divine providence covered the Capitol when it passed this legislation. Time will tell. Damn. Got a new best friend. Okay, the third story puts all of this in something of an ironic light. With all this nonstop effort to make women slaves of the state, abortions, this alert from the Washington Post dinged in early today. The number of abortions in the U.S. hits historic low, the fewest than at any time since Roe v. Wade governor figures show. This is where the, the good news, bad news part comes in. Quoting the Post, to explain the recent decline in abortions since a peak in the 1980s, researchers have cited improved contraceptive access, okay, which has led to a decrease in unintended pregnancies, good, especially among teens, great, as well as the state laws requiring parental consent, waiting periods, and other conditions that make it more difficult for women to get abortions. Not so good. There's so much in just those few sentences. Obviously, it's good to see numbers that show the effectiveness of medical science and education in preventing situations that call for medical procedures. Any, med any medical procedure is... Less than desirable. Getting a tooth pulled, less than desirable. Having an abortion, less than desirable. Anything where you have to attack a human body, get in there, do something, muck around, that's all bad news. So the fact is, science and education are decreasing the demand for abortion. Yay. But the other bit in there is about health care denied. We go back to the tooth pulling. We go back to the appendectomies. And imagine if it said appendectomies are down because access to that medical, medical procedure has been decreased. Not so good, huh? The fight goes on for women to be treated as autonomous humans and actual adults. That's one loss, one win, and one draw. Hey, speaking of adults, we are hearing from some in Washington, D.C. Supreme Court Chief Justice Roberts smacked down Donald Trump in a very unusual public statement. Dark money has a new challenger, and a bipartisan congressional group is poking at Donald Trump about the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi. So let's take those in order. First, Chief Justice John Roberts hit some kind of ceiling. He maxed out with Donald Trump, and he decided not to sit silently. This was sparked by Tuesday's Trump comments at the White House. He was asked about the Ninth Circuit smackdown of his proposed immigration policy changes, and Trump said, quote, you go to the Ninth Circuit, Circuit, and it's a disgrace. And I'm going to put in a major complaint, because you cannot win if you're us. Who's us? What is this man? If you're us, a case in the Ninth Circuit. And I think it's a disgrace. This was an Obama judge. And I'll tell you what, it's not going to happen like this anymore. Roberts did not sit still for that. The Associated Press asked him for a response, and he replied, We do not have Obama judges or Trump judges, Bush judges or Clinton judges. What we have is an extraordinary group of dedicated judges doing their level best to do equal right to those appearing before them. And he tipped his hat to Thanksgiving by adding independent judiciary is something we should all be thankful for. All right, I, I'm thinking he's not 100% right. You're probably thinking he's not 100% right. But there's some merit to the fact that he spoke up at all. And there's an interesting side note from Alex Seitz Walt on Twitter. He said, quote, the most stunning thing about this John Roberts statement is that he gave it to the AP, 
not during public remarks or in a law journal or any one of the myriad ways he could have softened its edges. He wanted it out there and now through the front door. Interesting. Now Trump did respond on Twitter. He did. He said, blah, 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 Obama, blah, 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 security, blah, blah, blah. That was in two tweets. No response to that yet from Roberts. I suspect we're not going to hear back from him on that. More grown-ups heard from Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, that's CREW, is going after conservative dark money group Freedom Frontier. That group operates as a nonprofit, but as CREW points out to the IRS, it seems to exist solely for political purposes. CREW Executive Director Noah Bookbinder said, just as we suspected, Freedom Frontier is abusing its tax-exempt status to hide the identity of those who are influencing elections. It's not even clear they would have filed a 2016 tax return at all, if not for our previous complaints. Freedom Frontier has been bankrolling political activities and funneling secret money toward elections in direct violation of the law and IRS regulations, and there must be accountability for this kind of lawless, secret influence. In fact, it's going after Freedom Frontier on two different fronts. It's rebooted its June complaint to the FEC that this alleged nonprofit worked to hide millions of dollars that messed with the Missouri gubernatorial campaign. More adults, these in Congress. In fact, Congress people from both sides of the aisle, they are keeping the Khashoggi murder alive as an issue in front of Trump's face, even though he'd like to dismiss it. To the AP for this, the chairman and ranking member of the Senate Foreign, Foreign Relations Committee have written to the president demanding that his administration make a determination about whether Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman was responsible for the killing. Senators Bob Corker and Bob Menendez wrote the letter to President Donald Trump on Tuesday asking for an investigation under the Global Magnitsky Human Rights Accountability Act. Talk to Bill Broward about that act. He was one of the powers behind it. That's back in a, uh, an earlier episode of the broadcast. Check it out on the website. Back to the article. That act requires the president to determine whether a foreign person is responsible for an extrajudicial... Hmm, say that three times. Is responsible for an extrajudicial killing, torture or other gross violation of internationally recognized human rights against an individual exercising freedom of expression. Calling for that from both sides of the aisle. You know, while we're on Saudi Arabia, which we're not supposed to criticize because money profits money, but Human Rights Watch is collecting some really horrific testimony about tortured rights activists in Saudi Arabia. We go to the Telegraph UK for this one, quote, Saudi Arabia has tortured and sexually harassed women's rights activists detained in prison, a new report alleges. The activists who have not been named for fear of reprisal were arrested by Saudi authorities in May in a crackdown ahead of the kingdom's lifting of the decades-long women's driving ban. Prisoners have allegedly been interrogated by masked jailers with one made to hang for long periods of time from the ceiling, sources told Human Rights Watch. Several showed physical signs of torture, difficulty walking, uncontrolled shaking of the hands, red marks and scratches on their faces and necks. At least one of the women attempted to commit suicide multiple times, according to testimonies. The women have little access to lawyers and are yet to be officially charged. However, they have been accused of undermining security and aiding enemies of the state. Mind you, this was all about women who wanted the right to drive cars. They wanted to drive. And all of this is apparently okay with the orange goon in the White House. In fact, he got the jump on Thanksgiving. On Wednesday, he tweeted, oil prices getting lower. Great. Like a big tax cut for Americans and the world. Enjoy. $54 was just $82. What? $54 was just $82. Thank you to Saudi Arabia. But let's go lower. Donnie, you can't get any lower.
Let's scoot on over to Facebook, where Zuckerberg has made it clear he doesn't care to divest himself of one of his two hats, CEO and chairman, and Sheryl Sandberg will stay put, too. This is in the wake of the November 14th bombshell story in The New York Times. Now, that story, you must check it out if you haven't yet, it deeply detailed Facebook's responses to ad regulation Russian interference, public relations tax that included digging dirt on its enemies, and reportedly included linking Facebook critics to George Soros. Poor George Soros gets blamed for everything. From inside and outside Facebook, there have been calls for Mark Zuckerberg to pick one of those two seats and give the other one up. But he told CNN Business that it is, quote, not the plan for him or Sandberg to step back. Robert Reich is weighing in with a full-column commentary about this over The Guardian, some select bits starting with the title, Break Up Facebook. And while we're at it, Google, Apple, and Amazon. Just some select bits here. America's gilded age of the late 19th century began with a raft of innovations, railroads, steel production, oil extraction, but culminated in mammoth trusts owned by, quote, robber barons, who used their wealth and power to drive out competitors and corrupt American politics. We are now, Reich says, in a second Gilded Age, ushered in by semiconductors, software, and the Internet that has spawned a handful of giant high-tech companies. Facebook and Google dominate advertising. They're the first stops for many Americans seeking news. Apple dominates smartphones and laptop computers. Amazon is now the first stop for a third of all American consumers seeking to buy anything. Massive concentrations of economic power generate political clout that is easily abused. How long will it be before Facebook uses its own data and platform against critics? or before potential critics are silenced even by the possibility. America responded, he said, to the Gilded Age's abuses of corporate power with antitrust laws that allowed the government to break up the largest concentrations. He goes on in the article to detail the utter lack of inclination for congressional members of either party to get this job done, but he says we must resurrect antitrust. Let's take a break, shall we? And then we're going to get to historian journalist Adam Hochschild. After that, what the baby booners have to own about the urban housing crisis. I'm Angie Coiro. This is the Bradcast. Hi, this is Brad. My thanks to those who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to sign up for a subscription to the Bradcast of any amount you like. We rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please grab a subscription at bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. It's the broadcast. I'm Angie Carr. Brad and Des are out on holiday today in the spirit of the season. Let us give thanks for Adam Hochschild. He's a gift to American history, world history, journalism, activism. His book on colonialism in the Congo, King Leopold's Ghost, that was a landmark in its examination of dehumanizing greed. His work dates back to the old revolutionary San Francisco publication, Ramparts, through Mother Jones and countless articles and essays, books too. His latest book is a collection of essays dating back to the 1990s. It is called Lessons from a Dark Time. Right on the money, huh? I talked to him about the book for my own show, In Deep with Angie Coiro, and these are some excerpts from our conversation. One of the stories that grabbed me almost immediately, I'm so obsessed with the prison structure in America with the fact that it's used for profit, with the fact that there's no real rehabilitation in many cases. And you, by contrast, saw what was happening in Finland, nearly an unbelievable contrast to what we see in America. So when was your experience in Finland and what did you see there? Okay, this was about eight or nine years ago. I was invited to a book festival in Finland. And when I got there, the publisher who'd invited me went over the schedule and said, uh, look, you've got a free day on next Thursday, whatever, would you like us to arrange something for you? We've got some beautiful medieval churches here. You want to go see them? And I said, actually, I'd really like to see a prison. 
uh, because I knew that at that time Finland had the lowest incarceration rate in the European Union and one of the very lowest in the world. Uh, they lock people up today at a rate less than 10% of what we do in the United States. Less than 10%. Uh, and, you know, there are differences between the two countries. It's smaller, it's colder, but that doesn't explain it. But as a percentage, we're looking at something still remarkable. Yes, absolutely. So uh, I spent a day in two prisons, most of them in, in one prison called Kerala, which was about a half hour north of Helsinki. And it was so incredibly different from the American prisons that uh, I visited. For one thing, this was a medium security prison. All the prisoners were men, but the director of the prison and most of the staff were women. Uh, the prisoners all day long were in classes. Language, computer skills, mathematics, uh, different trades, uh, you know, y you name it. They were in classes all day long. They had uh, three times a week, a life skills class. They had an anger management course. They had individual psychotherapy. They had group psychotherapy. They had an AA group. Uh, and they had something the prison authorities were very happy with, very particularly proud of, which was a series of lectures by former inmates who had finished their sentences, been released, and successfully readjusted to life in the outside world. Uh, all this stuff was going on. There was a library bigger than you would find in most American high schools. If a prisoner wanted a book that wasn't in the library, they could borrow it on the interlibrary loan system. These classes they took and the courses in computer skills or, or whatever, when a prisoner successfully finished one of these classes, he got a diploma from the national organization that certifies such things. And the diploma doesn't say you took the course in prison. It just says your level of skill in language, computers, whatever it is. Uh, the, there was a cooking class that cooked a very delicious meal that I shared. Uh, when before a prisoner is released, and, and I should say there were people in there for violent crimes, mm -hmm. you know, armed robbery, that sort of thing. Uh, in the last half of someone's sentence, if he's on good behavior, he gets weekend furloughs to go uh, outside the prison for a weekend at a time. And then before the prisoner is released for good, a social worker from the prison goes to his hometown and makes sure he has a job and a safe place to live. Now, my first reaction at seeing all of this was to think, well, you know, it's remarkable. It's a much more sensible way of doing things. Um, but it would be mighty hard to reproduce that in the United States because of the cultural differences. You know, much as we might like to, it's hard to sort of uproot traditional American ways of doing things and replace them with enlightened Nordic ones. But here's where looking at the history of something uh, comes in useful because I learned a remarkable thing when I started doing this. If you roll back the clock about 70 years, to the year 1950. At that time, Finland was locking people up at a rate greater than we were doing in the United States, even with all those southern prisoners on, on chain gangs in the south. Uh, then there was a long series of reforms in Finland, not without their hardline hard opponents, which uh, cut to a third the rate at which they were imprisoning people. Meanwhile, we uh, doubled and tripled and doubled again our rate here in the U.S. Now there have been some moves in recent weeks that makes me hope it's going to come down slightly, but we've got a long way to go mm -hmm. uh, before we get to what the, the standard is in uh, other more enlightened countries. I think one of the things I appreciated most about that chapter was you were careful not to go for the easy fix. And this is another thing where you credited an author who looked into this. And it doesn't 
make it all go away if we stop privatizing prisons. Right. You know, it doesn't make it all go away if we make mouth noises toward, oh, we have classes, because there are ostensibly classes in these things. So you don't present it as something that's easy to fix. Right. It's multifaceted. Right. It's very multifaceted. I think one aspect of the American system that I would highlight that we don't pay much attention to is we are one of the very few countries, uh, if not the only major country, where most judges and prosecutors are elected. You know, you vote for the district attorney. You can vote to confirm or remove a, a court justice. And there have been studies that show that, uh, you know, judges tend to increase the amount, the length of the sentences they pass out as election day nears. And it's very hard for a, a district attorney to get elected on a platform of, you know, having a more enlightened attitude uh, towards dealing with, with crime. There are a few uh, where that's happened, but it's pretty rare. I think I'd be just as afraid, though, to have judges, or pardon me, to, to have prosecutors and DAs appointed by some of the people we have in office. That's true. But a lot of countries have a system where there's, you know, some sort of an impartial national commission that, you know, certifies people by their training and, you know, a any system is subject to manipulation and can go awry if you have bad, you know, bad people in it. But uh, an awful lot of countries, especially in Western Europe, uh, but other parts of the world as well, manage to have lower crime rates and dramatically lower rates of people in prison. Mm -hmm. So I did read the book in order, although you say people can go any order they want. So I, I do want to go to the Congo next. Mm -hmm. You met a remarkable woman in the Congo. When we hear about people who have risen above terrible circumstances to help others, we like to think that the terrible things are in their past. Mm -hmm. That is not the case. In the Congo, there's Rebecca Masika Katsuva, and she is a great help to women in her area who have been raped in mm -hmm. military, uh, purged military uh, exercises, for lack of a better word, militaristic um, events. And you'd like to think that her rape, which was horrendous, the one she described to you, was at least in her past. But as she was talking to you, she was weeping and told you about her most recent Yeah, which rape. was just a few months before I and the couple of human rights workers I was traveling with were, were talking to her. Uh, I mean, uh, the Congo is a, is a place of tremendous violence and uh, much suffering these days. It's probably the largest territory on earth that basically does not have a functioning central government that provides any sort of meaningful services. And because it is so rich in mineral wealth, you know, gold, uranium, coltan that's in everybody's cell phones, uh, uh, diamonds, tin, everything you can imagine. The combination of that wealth and the lack of a central government means that military force reigns supreme. And the Congolese army, the army of various warlords in a sort of constantly changing system of alliances, the armies of neighboring African countries, these are the real force in that country. And one of their weapons for terrorizing the civilian population is mass rape, something that happens much more often in wartime, in many wars, in many times and places, than is often reflected in the history, in the history books. Mm -hmm. uh, today, we know something about it because of r reporting from the scene there. Uh, a, a, um, a Congolese doctor, Dennis Mukwege, just shared the, the Nobel Peace, Peace Prize for his work with rape survivors. This uh, extraordinary woman, Rebecca Masika Katsuva, or Mama Masika, as people called her, was at the time I was there a few years ago running a center for rape, rape victims, a very... Um, simple, you know, doing it on no money with, you know, walls made out of 
you know, rooms partitioned by cloth hanging from a tin roof ceiling, uh, adobe walls on the outside. She herself had been raped four times uh, because she very boldly ventures into the field, or I should, uh, to try to find uh, women who have suffered this and bring them to her center. And I have to put that in the past tense because she died recently. Oh. Uh, of uh, uh, a heart attack when she was weakened by malaria, uh, but an extraordinary person and one of the many really brave people that I've had a chance to meet mm -hmm. in reporting different stories around the world. I think rape has always been a, a sad and terrible element of waging war. Did I perceive correctly from this that it is used as a weapon more frequently and more consistently? in what we've seen in the Congo? Well, certainly it takes place on a vast scale there. The problem with rape in any situation, whether wartime or ordinary civilian life, is that the statistics are not very good because, you know, people don't like to report it. But the estimates in the Congo are that it's, you know, the, at least hundreds of thousands of women have mm -hmm. been, been and subject children. to this. Yeah, often very, very young girls and children, mm -hmm. yeah. When you look at the Congo, you talk later in the book about India, and later in the book it crops up again. You talk about how invisible a lot of this is. When we talk about history, it's Eurocentric history. Mm -hmm. When we talk about, you know, battles going on in the world or where our interest is, it's not in the Congo. It's not in India. It's here. I, jumping to a conclusion here, but I mean... It, do you see any way out of that? Any way that is, is your book part of that to open our eyes to what's going on? And what else could we do about that? Well, I hope so, because I like to write about things like this and not celebrity golf tournaments here at home or <laughs> any other sorts of subjects or not what the Kardashians are doing or whatever. Uh, so I hope it's part of that. Can I just say I'd love to read Adam Hochschild on the Kardashians? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, I remember when I was on that trip to, to Eastern Congo, at one point I crossed paths with the, the only other American journalist I met during that time. I crossed paths with in an airport for, for half an hour or so, and we were chatting. Uh, I will not name the newspaper she was from because she was complaining that she had to cover about 20 countries. And the only thing that her editors were interested in uh, were stories concerning American ships that had been attacked by pirates in the in the Indian Ocean. Something going on at that time a great deal. But to give her credit, she was traveling around eastern Congo trying to do some stories from there. Yeah. So, you know, the the public here demands pirates, Kardashians, celebrity golfers or whatever. Uh, but I think the role of good journalism and of really good news organizations, uh, you know, is to provide the news that matters, even if it doesn't fit exactly what the consumers want. You reviewed a book recently for the New York, New York Review of Books, and the title caught my eye, Hitler's American Model, the United States and the Making of Nazi Race Law. The reason that comes to mind now is you were talking about divided families. Mm -hmm. uh, my fiance and I were having a long conversation the other day about the comparisons of where we are now to the run-up of the horror in Germany. I see it as possible for this to happen again here. He does not. So I wonder with what you were looking at with that book and if there's any relevance of the one to the other about how that author and how you might see what's happening now and how bad it can get here. I regret to say I think I'm on your fiancé's side and not your yeah, side. I like him. Our, I like our, you. Our, it doesn't, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> uh, I don't think it's going to happen here the way it did in Germany. We may still be in for some very tough times ahead. But when you compare the U.S. today to Germany in the 1930s, there is a a lot of outspoken resistance. I mean, there is a lot of nastiness, a lot of blatant chauvinism, racism, um, uh, contempt for women, uh, appealing, you know, to the very 
worst elements of human nature, nature by Trump and the people around him. I mean, the way he he talked for so long about that caravan of refugees, you know, coming across Mexico, heading for our southern border, sending, you know, 15,000 troops to the border. I mean, that's shameless. But look at the election results early November. The majority of the American people are not buying this. Mm -hmm. uh, look at the way the the Women's March right after Trump uh, was inaugurated, which I think was the largest coordinated mass demonstrations in American history. Uh, look at the way uh, shortly after that time, tens of thousands of, <coughs> of people mobbed airports around the country when he tried to do the, the, the Muslim ban. So that tells me that there is a spirit of resistance and integrity in this country that's still there that didn't really exist in Nazi Germany where the opposition was divided, people were, were cowed, um, there weren't acts of outspoken resistance like that. And I think our institutions are somewhat stronger here. That's reassuring. Well, I hope I'm right. We'll see. <laughs> when you were putting the book together and selecting your essays, which of these essays for you doesn't necessarily need to be the best, the one, but of these essays, which ones were bringing to you or bringing lessons for today, since you call the book Lessons, which of the essays do you look at and say, this is something we need to know going forward? Well, I think... Uh, Negatively speaking, uh, the title essay, Lessons from a Dark Time, look at that period of tremendous repression, 1917 to 1920, and let's make sure we don't do anything like that again. Look at what happened. Look at the lack of resistance that was offered, for example, by the mainstream press during that period. Uh, they went along with all of this stuff and didn't really uh, protest it. Uh, then I like to think uh, there's some positive lessons. Uh, the prison in Finland, which we talked about earlier. Uh, there's another piece in the book that I hope is a positive lesson of sorts, a profile of the late Laurie Baker, who was a British-born architect who spent all of his life, or all of his, almost all of his professional life, working in India, whom I met when I lived there some 20 years ago and uh, spent some time following him around. Uh, a man who cares passionately about building buildings that are beautiful and that use very little energy mm -hmm. in their construction uh, and in their use. And it was fascinating. There are all kinds of things I've never seen in architecture in the United States. For example, when, and, and this is a guy who built houses, uh, apartment houses, office buildings, you know, theaters, restaurants, so on. All right, when a building requires poured concrete, what do you usually see in poured concrete? Well, you've all seen houses under construction. It's rebar, you know, steel bars. Well, steel in a poor country like India is expensive. It takes a lot of energy to produce. It has to be, you know, mined somewhere else and smelted and transported uh, and so forth. Uh, Lori Baker used bamboo within concrete as his reinforcing uh, material because he realized if you take a, a stalk of bamboo, you dry it, you split it lengthwise, and then tightly lash together the two rounded edges, it makes something very stiff, which serves the same purpose in reinforcing uh, uh, concrete. And it grows everywhere in India. It doesn't cost you anything to, to get it. I was fascinated by that. I was fascinated by the way a lot of the buildings he'd built had something that looked like a do you remember on old-fashioned freighters and passenger ships, you'd see a sort of a funnel on the, the top deck that funneled air down to 
cool off the engine room and so on. Well, he put funnels on the roofs of his buildings, usually made out of brick, faced in the direction of the prevailing wind to catch the wind, funnel it into the building so that you don't have to have air conditioning, which uses a lot of energy. Um, different, you know, building buildings in a way where there's a space where the hot air can rise and escape, things like that. So to see somebody doing something like this in a poor part of a poor country, but coming up with ideas that we could use here today, to me was a positive lesson. Mm -hmm. One of the things I appreciate about the book is that you look at topics or you read the topics that you've gone into here and you sometimes read a take that you've never come across before. And we're talking about the American divide. And one of the big American divides is gun culture versus, you know, the anti-gun movement or anti-excessive gun movement. And you were talking about this argument over what a well-regulated militia was supposed to be. And if you're for gun regulation, you're saying, well, that was militias. We're not a militia. And instead, it's Something feels sterile about this dispute over what the Founding Fathers had in mind. It's tragic we should still have to battle over what that men of assemb that assembly of men in their frock coats and powdered wigs intended when all around us the carnage from gun violence continues. And then you go on to cite some of that violence. And then you go into Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz's book, Loaded. But just the very thought that this argument that has gone on and on may in fact be the wrong argument, mm -hmm. I found really refreshing. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we, we spend a lot of time uh, in this country talking about what the Founding Fathers intended. But, you know, the Founding Fathers were almost two and a half centuries ago. And a lot of things have changed since then. And even though I do very much honor them for having in mind the system of checks and balances, which I feel very grateful for now, I think we've got to, you know, get beyond parsing what particular words in the Constitution mean and, uh, and think about solutions to things like, like gun violence. One thing that I learned in writing that piece, and, and uh, sometimes the subjects I pick I do because it's a chance for me to learn something, mm -hmm. is... Uh, the tremendous differences in among states in this country, when you look at the uh, the differences in gun deaths between states that regulate guns very tightly and those that don't, there are enormous differences. I mean, there are similar differences, you know, sort of of a threefold level, in terms of the rates at which states send people to prison. Mm -hmm. uh, so that sometimes I think we need to look more closely at our own country and see where things like those, those practices seem to be working and how could we spread them more widely. Adam Hochschild, his new book is Lessons from a Dark Time and Other Essays. More to come on the broadcast. Stick around. I'm Angie Coiro. <laughs> Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. It's the broadcast. I'm Angie Coyle. Brad and Desi are preparing to gobble, gobble some turkey or whatever they gobble this time of year. I'm sitting in for them. I was talking to longtime housing activist Randy Shaw about all the factors that squeeze the lower and middle classes out of urban housing. Now, he's known to the locals on, on my side of the street here out in San Francisco because he's been working against gentrification in the Tenderloin for, for decades, and he's a journalist here. But now he's gone around the country to find out what forces combine to make this a problem around the country and to see what solutions are actually working. 
And you heard of the usual suspects in what makes it a tough problem. We talk about greedy developers or NIMBYs or voracious businesses taking over. But he takes a look at what the factors really are and comes up with another one generational conflict. He says this is about the boomers making life miserable for millennials and everyone who comes after them. So here's a part of my conversation with Randy Shaw. I can understand someone who owns a parking lot, a garage, or even a housing development that's already underway saying, look, this is mine. I paid for this. I bought it. It is in keeping with the system of finance in America that I should be able to capitalize on that. So where does that fall apart? Well, we starting in the early 1970s, just take it back, we had a thing called urban renewal that happened in the 50s. Terrible things happened, bulldozed neighborhoods. It was terrible. And in response to urban renewal, a neighborhood preservation movement arose, which was very progressive and very productive. It actually, the first neighborhood preservation ordinance in the United States passed in Berkeley in 1973, a landmark ordinance. But what happened with that is it created the idea that neighbors homeowners should have the right to control what gets built in their neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And we know how that played out racially in Yonkers, New York, the, 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 the book and the series about whites not wanting blacks to live in their neighborhood because that's neighborhood character. Right. So we have a real problem that we have had decades in which homeowners have led to believe that they can decide who gets to live in their city. Mm -hmm. So, which is an exclusionary policy and promotes great financial benefits to themselves. Because one of the things I talk about in this book that very few people seem to realize until recently is that homeowners profit from preventing housing because they artificially restricted supply. The reason that home values in San Francisco have gone up in six years, a million more in equity is because nothing gets built. Mm -hmm. So everyone is always going after a fixed supply. If there was a bigger supply, your house wouldn't be worth as it would still be worth a lot. So we have so economically self-interested homeowners being given by cities veto power over what gets built in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And that is crazy. The public interest is subsumed to the private interest. And those who happen to get in at a certain age group, those of us who are boomers, were able to buy housing in the 70s and 80s at a fraction of the price today. And then suddenly we can control who gets to live there forever else and, and make millennials pay more. That's what my whole book is about changing. And that's what cities have to stop countenancing to the small minority of disproportionately white boomer homeowners at the expense of more diversity economically and racially. How does a city council, for example, come up against the very people who are paying taxes and making the demands, for example, this, this is single family homes. It needs to stay single family homes. That's what we paid for. That's what we bought. Well, I'll tell you something very interesting. What has been found both in Seattle and in Massachusetts is that the people in these homeowner groups in Los Angeles who speak for the neighborhood really don't speak for the neighborhood. They're not reflective. These neighborhood councils are not reflective of the neighborhood. They're disproportionately white homeowners mm -hmm. and older. Now, for example, in L.A., they just changed the election cycle. For the future L.A. elections, there'll never again be another local L.A. election that isn't coinciding with state and national, so the bigger turnout. When you have, If you're a city that has local elections independently, you are guaranteeing homo, boomer homeowners and older homeowners a disproportionate political impact. So you can change that. I describe in the book, Austin and Seattle fund homeowner groups to oppose the housing the mayors want. Mayor, the former Mayor Murray in Seattle said, this is crazy. I have this all in the book. I lay out what he said. He says, why is Seattle funding neighborhood groups to oppose Seattle's housing plans? He defunded them. That's how you do it. And you mobilize as the new YIMBY movement, which I discussed in the book, uh, yes, in my is backyard. doing. And, and you have YIMBYs here in the South Bay and coming out and, and pushing against the homeowners. The homeowners used to control the whole debate. Now we see all across America in the cities I talk about, people saying urbanists and YIMBYs saying, wait a minute, we need dense housing. We need infill. The environment can't sustain more sprawl. So the tide is turning. Well, when you have a government, and we've seen this in a couple of the areas, and it also exists in other parts of the country that you've gone into, one of the difficulties is a lot of cities will have at-large elections. And an at-large election disproportionately favors the people who, who do show up. Uh, here, Where we're sitting right now in Redwood City, which used to be my town, um, they are, I believe, having just moved to making sure that neighborhoods are represented for themselves. So the neighborhoods with less money 
who could benefit from more housing actually have a voice on the board? Well, as I described in Generation Priced Out, that was the problem with Austin. Mm -hmm. Austin, Texas had at-large elections until 2014, which meant that it's a heavy Latino area and not high voting rates, especially in local elections. They have runoff elections so that you had a small number of white homeowners controlling who won all the seats. That changed, and Austin politics is shifting, and that's why Austin is getting more focused and more promoting of density and infill housing and, tra and public transit, things that are priority are not priorities for boomer homeowners, but are priorities for the majority of residents. Because everything we're talking about is that the majority isn't ruling. Right. We have minority rule in city after city. The same progressive cities that are all upset about what's going on with voting in Georgia and, and red states and voter suppression, We've created mechanisms in our own cities to empower wealthier, whiter people over renter people of color. It's very inconsistent with what cities say they believe in. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about how some of this starts, how the edge of gentrification starts. You talk about coffee houses. That's a cliche here. As soon as Starbucks moves in, they're the first edge of franchises. It's kind of a, a two-edged sword. You have them displacing the small businesses that are already there. But you also have services in some cases coming into areas that they didn't have. So talk about that conflicting. Well, edge. I've always believed, and I and I've worked for almost forty years in the Tenderloin neighborhood, and wrote a book about the Tenderloin and how we've dealt with stopping gentrification because we are the only neighborhood in San Francisco that'll never be gentrified, and uh, and how we did it in the Tenderloin, and really the nature of the businesses in a neighborhood usually doesn't have very much to do with gentrification. Uh, there's an exception, which I talk in the book about Boyle Heights, where when you bring in a certain kind of art gallery and cafe, art and there's washing. no one, and there's <laughs> nobody in the surrounding area who's going to patronize it. There's obviously something going on, and you're trying to change the character. But gentrification is really about replacing one population living in a neighborhood with another. And the way to stop that, as I describe in the book, is for aggressive land acquisition and nonprofit acquisition to take land off the speculative market. That's what we did in the Tenderloin. I mean, I compare in the book between the Mission District, which gets a lot of publicity, and now the Tenderloin was very aggressive after the dot-com boom in the 90s of acquiring real estate, taking it off the market. The Mission didn't build any nonprofit housing for 10 years. Mm -hmm. So when the tech boom of 2012 starts, suddenly everyone's building market rate housing. People in the Mission saying, wait, we need affordable housing. Well, you didn't acquire it for 10 years. You got to do it when the market's down. You can't wait. You have to acquire land, not at the height of the market, and not when everyone's competing for it, but when they're not competing for it. And, and that's what really, so that's an example of how it wasn't inevitable this happened. It was bad strategizing by certain neighborhoods and not preempting potential threats. How common is that across the spectrum, New York, Austin, the other areas you went to? Well, I'll tell you, uh, one of the themes of my book that I really emphasize, people say, well, what can you do about it? How can you? When you have public land in a city, use it for affordable housing, particularly in a gentrifying neighborhood. I write it in, my, in the Generation Priced Out about a situation with Crown Heights with Mary de Blasio having an armory up that became vacated in Crown Heights, which is rapidly gentrifying, perfect opportunity for affordable housing. He's a progressive mayor. You'd think he'd be supported. His plan for the armory, luxury condos. And I describe in the book the big fight that occurred there. Like the Crown Heights community couldn't understand this. You're, you're supposed to be for affordable housing. Crown Heights is gentrifying. We can't get very many sites. We have a city-owned block you can make affordable, and you want, and that, and I describe what happened in the book. So, so you increasingly, I'm finding cities are realizing, when you have public land in a gentrifying area, make that affordable. Middle class, that's how the middle class and working class can get into high opportunity neighborhoods. They call them high opportunity, high quality neighborhoods, better education, better jobs, better culture, and you have public land right there. You got to use it for that. Instead of saying people say, well, we should build condos there to maximize value. No, you want to create inclusion. You build affordable housing. Does the fear of of minimizing the tax base or, or making the average tax base lower figure into that? Not on the cities I'm talking about because I'm not dealing. I'm dealing with the high housing cost cities. Mm -hmm. and, and no, I think it's just a mentality where too many cities talk about inclusion, but then don't do it. And then they can always say, well, it's not our fault. I mean, the Bay Area is so beautiful. Of course, it's going to be expensive. I mean, there's only a limited number of people with view. You know, you've heard the stories. I mean, people make excuses. Well, we don't have any room to build. 
And when I was just in Austin, people would say they don't have room to build. I'm thinking like, oh my, they could build 100,000 units in Austin and wouldn't even notice. I mean, so much land. Mm -hmm. uh, LA, there's vast stretches of land that, on the transit corridors that you could build on. I mean, but, the, but people come up with excuses because the existing residents are happy with the way things are. Mm -hmm. They don't want more people. They don't want more more long lines at their cafe or restaurant because more people you've built a six-story building and there's more residents. It's kind of a selfishness that it's a drawbridge mentality that if we'd applied, the boomers would have been able to afford to live in these places. So the people who been it's like it's like people who are, came here as immigrants now want to stop immigrants. Do you run the risk of demonizing people who who simply want to and and I think it's understandable psychologically that you don't want to see change in what you've worked hard to attain? Well, you know, I do get that. I, I I see people say they like the way things are, but and I don't want to demonize people. But when you're you, they're actually demonizing newcomers because they're basically saying, I mean, they just had a thing in East San Jose. You you might have heard about this. Four thousand people signed a petition against teacher housing in San Jose. They said teachers are very undesirable. I saw that. Now, if I say to you and to the audience, I think something's wrong with them. My kids are both public school teachers in San Francisco. The fact that teachers can't afford to live in the cities they work in is disgraceful, should be unacceptable. So San Jose is trying to do something about it. So am I demonizing people who signed that petition? But, it, but it's wrong. They're trying to stop teachers from getting housing in their community. You mentioned in the book some things that, and I'm getting to solutions here. You mentioned some things that Seattle is doing right. So let's start with them. What is Seattle doing right? Well, they build twice as much housing as San Francisco. They build a lot of housing, and they have a very fast approval system. They also do something, something that I write about called the HALA program, where it, Seattle can't have rent controls. People say, how do tenants get, how do we create affordable housing? And they did it through a program where by giving extra height to developers in exchange for affordability. And that's something that even... Texas legislature won't stop. Mm -hmm. Austin can do it. Many, every city that's listening should have a measure which says, we'll give you two additional floors in exchange for percentage of affordable units. That is a great way to, to mix. And those tenants have protections of those affordable units. So it's really a great, great balance that they've done. Now, Seattle has had the same problem in there's single family home districts that have been off limits. And that's a fight they're still having because politically, uh, the former mayor was a little scared of moving forward on single-family home because the Seattle Times was up in arms against – they are really against housing, and uh, which are – the Chronicle, for example, Southwest Chronicle is very pro-housing, as is the LA Times, but the Seattle Times is not. And so politicians get easily scared, and they back down. But I think you're going to see very soon in Seattle a refocus on weight. We've built a lot in all these areas. We got to build more here too. Mm -hmm. How did they overcome in Seattle? How did they overcome opposition to? Oh well, you know, well you're gonna if you build a building, you're gonna cast a shadow on my house. Seattle did something. Well, they aren't that tall, but Seattle also did something very special. Is labor was very involved in the campaign. So when, you, when for, for politicians who are voting, labor was on board. Uh, David Rolfe of SEIU was a major player, and as I said earlier, the most pro-housing environmental groups in the United States are in Seattle. Frontera, these folks, they see it as a climate change issue. You know, Seattle 350, the Sierra Club, Sierra Club Seattle is extraordinarily great on housing. So you had political players that other cities often don't have. I mean, labor is such a key force in getting infill housing built. In some cities are not yet at the table. Mm -hmm. So we have to make that happen. It's happening a bit in California. It needs to happen in other places. Randy Shaw, all of this is from his new book, Generation Priced Out, Who Gets to Live in the New Urban America? That whole interview is at indeepradio.com slash podcasts. By the way, if you want to hear about upcoming guests, you can send your email address to info at indeepradio.com. I want to leave you with an exercise in gratitude since... Tis the season, yes. The New York Times Science section has a great piece up now, and it's called, Is There Hope for These Great Apes? Mountain gorillas are faring better, perhaps because some humans just won't listen to reason. Now, I encourage you to read this for yourself, but the gist of it is this. Some humans heard all the numbers, the number-based realistic gloom and despair about saving the great apes. 
gorillas, chimps, bonobos, orangs, and they decided to save them anyway. Hope versus numbers, optimism versus practicality. And as the article shows so beautifully, they're winning. Those populations are coming back. In case the regular news makes it sound like we can't win, do check this article out about the great apes. Again, it's in the New York Times science section. In fact, there's a cherry on the top for you, literally. At the top of the story, an irresistibly adorable baby gorilla. See, now you have to go look. (laughs) There you go. Happy Thanksgiving. Brad and Des are back next time. I'm Angie Quero. With all that new hope, good luck, world. Good luck, world.